Jimmy Guerrero was my first boyfriend ever. And I was so in love with him. Oh my God. I think we were in sixth or seventh grade and I made him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And then that was it. We were dating from that moment forward. Take one. Maxi's Taxi interviews and sound portraits of people you've never heard of. Richard Maxson here, known to some as Dickie Maxson, and with this podcast I'll be bringing you interviews and stories of people that you probably have never heard of. Many, but not all, will come out of my lovely little hometown, which is a mishmash of Lake Wobegon and Grover's Corners. Most importantly, this podcast will not be rambling conversations with my subjects, but rather a form of journalism that is an amalgamation of Studs Terkel, an old-time journalist and interviewer, and This American Life, the popular radio show. The stories will be 95% of my subject or guest, and just 5% at most of myself. Now, let's get down to business. My name is Brett Thompson. I'm 52 years old, and I'm a flight attendant for United Airlines. I live in Chicago, Illinois, and I'm from Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore. Brett Thompson and I have been friends for about 35 years, ever since I came back from school one summer and discovered she was my brother's new girlfriend. I didn't really know her before then because she was three years behind me in school, and also because she was an up-on-the-hill girl. She lived on Balancewood Road, just off of Ocean Boulevard. And Ocean Boulevard is a beautiful tree-lined road that overlooks the bay and runs through the woods between Atlantic Highlands and Highlands. Oh, that we had the best neighborhood in Atlantic Highlands. When I first moved there, oh my God. It was first off, tell me exactly where. Because you keep saying Atlantic, and I don't want people to think it was First Avenue. No, I live. I was privileged enough to, to live in a beautiful home in the very highest point on the East Coast, on the hill of Atlantic Highlands, uh, where it was a little more expensive to live. I moved here with my mother and my stepfather. And my stepfather and my mother ended up divorced. But during this time, they were having a really good years. But living up there, we um, had Willie Gimple and Ann Gimple and Kathy Gimple, who lived right up the street. We had Pam Kolick, who lived in the house next door to us on your left. Alex Moise and her family lived on the right-hand side at the top of the street. And then across the street from Alex Moise, we had the Frankenfelds, who was Eric and his sister Maria and his brother Michael. And then around the corner from them were the Guerreros. And there was Michael, Michelle, Maria, Teresa. There were like five or six of them. And they were really, that was like the Brady Bunch. Their house was like the Brady Bunch. They had the Tudor house with the little crisscross windows. They had the shag carpeting. Their father was a hairdresser in Rumson. He owned this really upscale salon catalog called like La Pierre. And um, the mother was this little squat, short Italian woman, but she had nails out to here. She always wore bright hot pink and she wore one of those 60s. She was like Staten Island. They had this big shag carpet. She they was had like all this, New York, New York housewife? Yeah, she had, oh my God, she was always like poofed out. She had like bedroom slippers with feathers on them and everything. <laughs> It was really, they were really something, that family. But Jimmy, but the brother, Jimmy Guerrero, was my first boyfriend ever. And I was so in love with him. Oh, my God. I think we were in sixth or seventh grade. And 
I made him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then that was it. We were dating from that moment forward. But then across the street was... So he liked your cooking. Yeah, I guess so. And across the street was John and Tommy Larson, and they were the only people in the neighborhood that had a huge built-in pool, so we always had pool parties there. And then Peter and Beth Ann Miles were right there, and there were the Joy sisters. They were twins, and then there were the Batchingers, and then there was Gretchen Gawler, and there was a, and, and Mary Lou Wiederman, and God... Jeannie Vyasevich. There was this whole group of people up on the hill. Oh, we used to play so many games. We'd go in the woods and we'd play manhunt and oh, and then the Batchingers. Oh my God. They tore this area down and built houses there now, but there used to be a ravine across from her house. And every year after you had, you wouldn't be, you, they stopped being able to burn your leaves on Atlantic Island. So you'd have to dump your leaves. And one of the places everyone would dump their leaves was this ravine. All the people that lived near this ravine. And in front of the ravine where you would dump it was a little fence. It was like a like a fence with just like a really thick, flat top. We would stand on that and jump in and then climb back up. But the leaves were, the ravine was so deep that the leaves were deep. So you would, you'd sometimes get down in there. Like now it freaks me out because we'd come home and be picking ticks off us like it was nothing. But now the thought of having all those ticks on me, like we'd come home and you'd have ticks on you and we didn't care. We were, I was kind of a tomboy. We were all kind of tomboyish up there. I mean, and then another thing we used to do, we used to climb up Red Rock. You'd go all the way down across from my mother's house behind that guardrail on the, the bridge there, you'd be able to climb down. It was straight down that red rock. Yeah. And we were so in shape, we would climb right back up like it was nothing. Because there were so many boys in the neighborhood, it was so fun growing up there. Oh, my God, we'd play spin the model at John Larson's house by the pool when we got older. Remember, we'd have big games of that. But there was something else we used to do. Oh, we'd always go down to Hudson Springs. Before it was contaminated, we'd walk down there with jugs, a bunch of us, and we'd fill the jugs up. But I love, but I don't regret, I'm so happy I didn't grow up in the techie age because I had so many great outdoor experiences. Kids today don't do those things and they missed out. I agree. They're missing out in a big way. Uh, everything we did, everything we did on Barbary Avenue was physical. Physical. So, yeah. And that's why we were, and I was a skinny kid. I always yeah. stayed in shape. You know, yeah. I never. I mean, everything, and everything was like, when our neighborhood also dominated by boys, I think Terry Searcy was the only girl. It was, um, it was all, everything was geared to hurt each other. Like every game we ever played. Was, exactly. Was, was, it was some was kind of. Try and actually physically hurt, hurt yes. the other kids, you know. And one of the favorite, most favorite things we used to do every fall, and this was the best, because John Larson had the built-in pool, we would go over to his house and we would get those big old chlorine buckets that they used to have, those big cardboard, and we would fill them for days. I mean, we would each each group would get one, like a few families would take them, and for like weeks we would fill them with acorns till they were like packed full. And then we'd go into my woods, there'd be the Batchinger house and my woods, and some people would be on the Batchinger side down over the hill, and some people would be in my mother's woods, and we would have acorn fights, and we would whip them. I mean, I'm surprised people we have eyes. I mean, it was like, whoop, whoop. yeah, I remember. And the guys especially were really competitive. I got you, you know. And then they, and then one sometimes what they would do is, if we had a big acorn fight over the weekend and someone was pissed off, they'd bring some to like in the school bus. They'd wait for the bus and they'd have some in their pocket and they'd be like, "There you go, mother. That was for last week." Yeah. Whoop. 
I, oh my god! Did you do you remember getting hurt at all? Or oh getting... yeah, we'd go home and have welts on our legs. It was great. My God! And then we'd play kick the can and this because I lived on a cul-de-sac, so we'd play. We'd be out there till ten o'clock at night playing kick the can or or kickball or base. I mean baseball, softball, wiffle ball. I'm so lucky to grow up there. Awesome place to grow up. Who was the most unusual? person or character that you remember or your best friend? Maria Frankenfeld was my best friend when I was in grade school and she lived up on the hill but she she didn't go to Henry Hudson she ended up going to Juilliard in New York because she was a ballerina and she ended up going to the school of ballet so we are friend but she was my best friend all through grade school and Willie was my total best friend on the block. All right let me ask you about Willie Gimple. He was always overly friendly and super funny you know he's so funny when I first moved there and, and I was getting ready to go into seventh grade and Willie was already, I think, in eighth grade. And he came down and I said, I'm so excited to start Henry Hudson next year. I couldn't wait to get to high school. And he goes, oh, and he brought me down a yearbook. And he goes, here, I want you to have this. I bought two this year and I don't need the other one. And he goes, you can look. He started, sh-, and he goes, he was so into it. And he goes, and I'll be there for you and I'll answer any of your questions and oh. help you. Yeah, he was So awesome. he was like a big brother to you. He was a lot. So let me tell you my Willie Gimple story. Um, I was playing baseball and he was a scorekeeper. And I always liked him. I always enjoyed his yeah. company because he, he was he was conversant. You know, you yeah, could, you he could was. talk to him. So um, I asked him one time. I said, "Willie, why would you want to be a scorekeeper on, on the ball team? Like, what do you get out of it?" So he ticked off about eight or nine reasons. You know, it's good for your college resume. It gained this. I get this, and it's everything so was like Willie. real methodical and real professional. And by the time, like he finished telling me, I was like, "Well, can I keep the score?" But he has a great job. What's he doing? He is uh, he is a city planner for the city of New Orleans. And I don't think he lives there anymore, but for like 15 years, I think he lived in New Orleans. Mm. And he planned their whole subway system. Oh, really? Yeah. He so he's is, an engineer? He's an, urban, he's an engineer and with a doctor, uh, a PhD in, um, not PhD, with a master's in urban planning. Really? Yes. And then he what? moved, he got offered to do the same thing. And I think he's living right now in Washington, D.C. The hill that Brett and Willie and the rest of the kids grew up on is part of Atlantic Highlands, but it's actually closer distance-wise to downtown Highlands than it is to downtown Atlantic Highlands. Well, you keep drawing this distinction and saying you were Atlantic Highlands, but explain that, because tell me what the geography, because I think of you as just living up another one of those hill kids. All right, well, say a hill kid, so there's this distinction. There's a distinction. There's a distinction. In Atlantic Highlands and Highlands are two towns that are close to each other, on the Jersey Shore, adjacent to Sandy Hook. You say it like you're like a sociologist. Well, I am. That's how I'm. Or, and or anthropologist. Anthropologist. All right. These are these two towns. I call them sister towns because the one thing that they have in common, besides the beauty of the geography and topography of both places, is the the children that grew up in those towns shared a high school, a regional, small regional high school. So. These kids, all of us, got to know each other through school. But the difference between Highlands and Atlantic Highlands probably started back in the 1800s, maybe even further back. But the Highlands had a deep history of early settlers who were fishermen and probably rum runners and maybe a few pirates because... The geographic location of Highlands allowed for the beaches to come right up into the town. Whereas in, I'm just talking geography right now, but like 
other than Atlantic Islands, which has a big, huge municipal harbor, it doesn't have the beaches coming up into the to the topography of the land. I think that has a lot to do with the types of people that settled in both places. And to make a long story short, the kids who lived in the highlands were definitely more economically challenged than the children who grew up in Atlantic Highlands, unless you were... If you had any means at all in Highlands, then you would live up on the hill near the high school. And that's where all the more affluent kids and families of the Highlands lived. And there was a huge discrepancy. Highlands had a definitely more poor demographic. And I think as a kid, all of a sudden being thrown into this high school and meeting these people that I never met when I was in Atlantic Highlands, it was a little bit of a culture shock. But yet you partook of Highlands. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was exciting. You know, when I first started hanging out with those people, I was a little taken aback and scared of it. But then I started to realize that, well, first of all, the cutest guys in school lived in Highlands. All the cute guys. We, we were talking about that one time at a high school reunion. All the good-looking kids lived in Highlands, mostly. Who, who were they? Well, like the Palm Brothers and you, Dickie, you were cute. You and your brother, Dave. I'm and sorry, what? John Nanny was cute. The Dempseys were cute. Um... You know, I started to make a lot of new friends. And most of my girlfriends that I made friends with, a lot of them were from Highlands. And so we'd start hanging out. And they were just a little tougher. They were like, the Highlands girls were the ones who were in the bathroom teaching us how to put eyeliner on and mascara when we were still not supposed to wear makeup. I remember my first day of school in seventh grade, I had on knee socks and a little dress. And like all these kids were wearing like halter tops with their midriff showing and bell-bottom jeans. And I was like this, I felt like I was like a fifth grader. So they, they were faster, and it was more fun. You know, they all had big families. And we'd go over their house, and first of all, they had tons of junk. My mother never bought junk food. My mother always bought really healthy food, and she was always health and weight conscious. So, like, we always had whole wheat bread and carrots and apples. I'd go to these people's houses. They'd have, like, ho-hos and potato <laughs> chips and, like, crap food. I remember we used to be like, oh, my God, this is so great. It was just fun because... The parents weren't always involved, so these kids would be running, we'd all be running amok, having parties, there were, you know, I just couldn't believe, like, people in Highlands would be hanging out on the street, on the church wall, till 10 o'clock at night, and in Atlantic Highlands, we'd all have to be inside by 8 and in bed, and, <laughs> you know, I was fascinated by how much freedom and how much fun it was to hang out there. This was like a whole new world. It was fun. Didn't you go into Highlands and disappear or something? For, or your mother thought you were kidnapped? Oh, I ran away from home because I was just, my mother was spending a lot of time working in New York. So we were unsupervised a lot growing up in my teenage years. So I um, had broken up with Mickey and I was going through a really rebellious stage and I had made friends with Paul. It all started with my friendship with Paul and Bert. And I really liked her and she had a, absentee mother but a really nice wonderful father but he was older so she had a lot of freedom because he wasn't that involved and I don't think she told him every little thing and so we would start hanging out at 14 and 15 with these guys at George Otten's house who were all uh, like Pete Desbians and Kiazza was there and Ray Kozlowski and I had a crush on Pete Desbians and I was just there for him and so they would go up to the up into the attic and they, they would they would go there and they 
we'd hang out with them and party downstairs, but then obviously they wouldn't come down for hours. But I was sleeping in Pauline's house and I kind of liked this dark side and this freedom and this, you know, and I, and I really liked, um, like I, I was like interested and I didn't want to do drugs or anything, but I was like fascinated. It would be no different than being a groupie in a rock band and kind of just going along with the flow and hanging out where you should, you don't, you know, just like in Hollywood, I'm sure there were 14 year olds, old girls hanging out where they shouldn't hang out just to get the guys in bands. It was kind of like that. It was like we were groupies to these older, good looking guys who were, you know, so I ran away from home. I didn't want anybody to tell me that I had to come home at a certain time. I wanted my freedom and I cut off all contact with my mother. So I didn't do any drugs and I didn't drink, but I was surrounded by all these crazy people. And because I was kind of searching, I think I was looking for a family. Like, you know, now you know how kids get in gangs. And I think because my parents were never there and I was lonely, I was just searching. But my mother came down looking for me and she said she went in, she said she went into all these drug dens. My mother's so dramatic, but they finally found me. And then my mother had found out that I had had this affair with and he was 22 and I was only 15. Wow. And so she sent me to live in California to go live with my dad. I didn't even get to say goodbye. All right. Uh, who'd you hang out with in high school? I hung out with Ann Desbians, Lisa Miss Kelly. Uh, I hung out with those two. I hung out with Bruce Guzzi. I hung out with Barbara Hartsgrove, and I hung out with Sandy Gardner, and I hung out with Kathy Bellicose and Sue Grasso. And in high school, I was different than everybody else. I was into punk rock and new wave music, and they were all into rock. And I love rock. I loved rock. But I... Um, I listened to, like, Ann Desbians and I were, like, taking the train into New York. When everyone else was, like, hanging out at Down the Hatch or the Dutchman, we were, like, going into New York City, and we were going to clubs like Snafu, and we were seeing, like, avant-garde bands, and and uh, and Lisa and I would go see, you know, I was into Lena Lovitch, and all these people that were coming from Europe that nobody else was listening to, so... I dressed different than everybody else. I was a real fashionista. I used to dye my hair purple, and then I'd dye it green, and then I'd wear really funky, outrageous clothes, and uh, I wore a hefty bag to school one day that Bruce Guzzi designed for me. And then what happened was I became super popular. Because I had popular friends and I started to be popular for just who I was because I wasn't afraid to be different. And, you know, and people seemed to like me. So I became popular. And so my brand of craziness, instead of being made fun of people, you know, they thought it was funny or cute or part of their they accepted me for who I was. As I mentioned, I first met Brett through my brother David when they were dating. It always seemed to me like they were two giddy kids in love, and Brett was always ready to get into the thick of anything my brother was up to. I remember once I saw her in the bed of David's old pickup truck, moving junk around and flipping an old spare tire out onto the sidewalk, probably to make room for baskets of clams to make a delivery. That's when I remember thinking, she's all right. David and I were friends, and David was my high school first love, his best friend. 
And then, so we became closest friends because he was always protecting me. When my boyfriend did crappy things to me, he would always stand up for me. And so I always liked Dave, like a whole lot. And Dave had a girlfriend at the time and all the four of us would hang out all through high school. His girlfriend was this cute little Irish girl named Laura DeFidel. Yeah, red hair, cute, really cute. And I liked her a whole lot. So he was dating her and I was dating Mickey and we were like the four musketeers. So I hadn't seen, I had moved away to New York City to go to college and after high school really never ran into him anywhere. And then when I first got out of college and moved back to New Jersey, I got an apartment in Highlands and I had a dog and I was walking the dog on the back road there and he came by in his truck and it was great to see him. And so we started a relationship and so I dated him for like four years, you know, and I really loved him. And that really was kind of like a young, even though you guys were in your 30s, like I remember it as being an idyllic relationship in many ways. Well, it was so full of nostalgia. Even thinking about it now is a fun time. He was great. But the thing with dating Dave that makes it so hard is because of his recovery, I always took a backseat to his meetings and his, you know, stuff like that. But I was willing to do that. I loved him enough and was willing to do that. Had he not had a relapse, we may have still be together. Who knows? So, you know how to mimic Dave. Can you mimic him for me? Okay. Um, if you ever would talk to Dave about his, his, his brother, he would get so frustrated because he loved his brother. But at the same time, there was a lot of sibling rivalry that probably stemmed from childhood. So, he'd be like, now about my brother, like, Dickie, I would say, you know, Dick, you just don't understand. So... That was one of them, and, and and one time I asked him where his brother was when he was back in New Jersey visiting, and he was like, He's, my, my brother's probably up the street up my father's ass. <laughs> He's up the street. He's got his head up my father's ass. Since we're talking about David, tell me about the um, his invention. Oh, Dave came to my house one day with this big pad, drawer's pad, drawing filled with this elaborate scheme it was a schematic he had written it out he had made all these notes he drew pictures of this amazing invention that was going to make him a millionaire and what it was was he says now i thought about this i gave it a lot of thought he goes and when you're in the shower he goes it's kind of a pain to reach down and you like get the soap and the conditioner and he goes the soap's always slipping out of your hands and falling on the floor so he made up this schematic for a soap conditioner and shampoo dispenser to use in the bathroom so that people could just pump out their stuff to take a shower. And then the way his was a little more unique was it attached to the shower head and with the press of a button after your hair was clean, the shampoo would come out and then the conditioner right from the nozzle. And I wasn't sure how that was all going to work, but he was convinced that this was going to be his millionaire, make him a millionaire. So he saw an ad for a, a patent lawyer in New York City. And, you know, you see those ads like on Saturday morning, you know, if you have an idea or invention, come to us. So we drive into New York City. He asked me to come with him. We drive into New York City and we're waiting and he sees the lawyer and he opens up this big schematic and he's showing him how this is all going to work. And I could see on the lawyer's face, you know, that 
it was kind of a scam because the lawyers have people like Dave come in and what they do is they get money from you up front to research all this stuff when they know they're never really going to do anything with it. Yeah. And he was saying to David things like, well, Dave, you know, I think this may have been done before on this level. And he goes, no, 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 mine is different. You don't see like the, the levers over here on mine and mine comes out of the, yeah, it was, it was that, it was that kind of a thing. But when we were leaving after the meeting, he's like, you know, he was upset because he said the lawyer didn't seem that enthusiastic about it. So Dave continued as we were, I remember we parked our car in a garage and we were walking to the garage and he was saying that that lawyer didn't know what he was talking about and that he was going to go to somebody else because he didn't feel he was getting a fair shake. So was David like Ralph Cramden where he always thought he had a good idea or something? Always thought it was always... Dave was the constant schemer. Every month, it was a new thing that he was going to either invent or a play he was going to write or something that he was going to sell. Oh, I remember one time he goes, I got this great clamming spot. Or it was a great clamming spot and he would come up with a big elaborate scheme about how he'd go out on Tuesdays, he'd get the clams, he'd tie them to the dock, leave them there for two days, go back and get them. Yeah, it was always a get-rich-quick scheme. And he was always thinking, and that was, that's what was kind of fun about him, though. You know, he was always thinking of something he could do to make money or, you know. So, and you were, like, you were too young to be skeptical? Well, I loved him and I loved the, I loved him and I loved his enthusiasm. Yeah, and I was probably young and in love and didn't really question it too much. And I don't know. No, I did, though. I mean, sometimes I thought he was being silly. But I'd indulged him. Okay, what about the flat tire? You want to tell me about that? Dave always had a truck that was kind of beat up all the time and he, uh, but he loved it and he never, and so every time he'd get a flat tire, because he had one tire that would leak, instead of getting the tire fixed, he would always have a can of fix-a-flat in the back. So he probably spent enough money on fix-a-flat that he could have actually bought a brand new tire. And that's kind of how he ran everything. If he had a gas tank, he would always fill his boat up with gas. So if he had a gas container that had a leak, he'd be throwing duct tape on it. You know, that's just how he was. I used to say, why are you using the Fix-A-Flat? It's so stupid. I'm like, just go buy a tire. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. I want to use the Fix-A-Flat. It's, it's only $4.95 a can. I can get one at Cumberland Farms. And I don't have to go out and buy a... Uh, you know, he, he, yeah, he, he was, but that's the thing about Dave, his mentality about frugality was more important than the actual effectiveness of the method. I think his dedication to the craft of frugality <laughs> was actually more important than, than the, the actual, than the outcome. And I think that, and for Dave, one of the things I can remember about him was to do something different, to be a rebel and to kind of. Just take things to the extreme. Stick it to the man. Stick it to the man. I always feel like, yeah, exactly. You know, the man, the man's beating me down. He, he lived and died by that mantra. And the thing about him that was so endearing was, because I was a smart girl. I'm no dummy. And a lot of stuff he used to do used to annoy me. Or I'd be like, what is he doing? But I admired him because a lot of people care what other people think so much so that they do what everybody else thinks they should do, and Dave was never like that, and I thought that was a good quality. So basically he's a nonconformist. Total nonconformist, and I like that. I thought that made, he made you believe his bullshit. <laughs> he would be convincing, you know, and I had to admire him for that. So show me again how he used to, like, talk when he would, like... 
He'd be like, you know the guy. I just went to Cumberland Farms, and and, and, I, and I told the guy, you know, fill up the tank, and I want it to the lines. And then he goes, and the guy didn't listen, and the gas was spent. He just... Oh, because he had a leak above the line or something? Yeah, like, but everything Dave did would... There was such a method to his madness. Everything he did had to have a meticulous outcome. Like, Dave had a way that he thought things should run. If things didn't go exactly how he had them planned out or exactly how he thought they should be... He would like have a meltdown. So that was interesting. Okay. You know? So anything else you want to say about Dave? No, that he's just a great guy and that his, um, his wonderful personality, his great sense of humor and his love of the creative process kind of makes up for all his other little areas. Was he acting when, um, Oh when, yeah. When you all were dating? Yeah. Uh huh. He did a lot of plays cause he was full into his sobriety. Then I think I met him in his sixth year of sobriety or fifth year because then we were together a year sober and then that's when he went off the wagon after that but he did a lot of acting he did a lot of um, helping other people in the na community he did a lot of uh, reading we would read a lot of books together and then have discussions we would write plays together or we had so creatively he was awesome he was my best friend and i loved him on multiple levels that relationship when we broke up i was very devastated so just to keep the chronology straight Brett was in her early 30s when she dated my brother. Before dating David, she got married a couple of times, but didn't have the best of luck with husbands. My first husband was um, from Brooklyn, New York. And as a young girl, I married him at 23. But at 22, when I met him, or 21, my girlfriends and I had just watched that movie nine and a half weeks. And I loved the character that Mickey Rourke played. And my first husband was kind of like, I met him in a nightclub and somebody spilled red wine on my dress. And I had this beautiful silk dress on. And he says, I know someone who has an all-night dry cleaner. So he took me to an all-night dry cleaner, got my dress dry cleaned from a friend of his in Staten Island. And he had this beautiful Porsche car. And I think at the time I was kind of obsessed with that. Oh, my God, I want to marry this rich guy. And I want to, you know, have that kind of cool life. And my first husband, when I first met him, was really, really fun. And we went to a lot of places and we just... It was awesome. So it happened really fast, and we got married, I think, six or seven months after we met. We got engaged and got married. And I had this big, beautiful diamond ring. And so that, but but what happened was, in essence, six months into the marriage, I got a call from Citibank and then a few other credit cards one day when I was home, and he had charged a bunch of stuff. He was a con artist. My first husband was a total con artist. Matter of fact, actually, when I found out he had stolen from me, I divorced him right away. But I definitely would say the failure of my first marriage was the fact that I had this ideal of the kind of guy I wanted to marry, and I turned him into that guy, and he wasn't that guy. Because I'm not an idiot. When I found out he was taking from me, then um, that was it. I left him right away. No, I just went home and said, Mom, I'm getting a divorce. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because there's no trust after that. How could you trust somebody? Well, what was he running up to debt? Like, what kind of debt on credit cards? Well, he took his secretary to the Bahamas for a week. <laughs> he uh, was buying clothes. He was telling me he was going to work, and he wasn't really going to work. He was just going and staying in hotels or uh, just not going to work and just going out every day and coming home as if you were going to work. So he's probably taking money out in cash just to live. So he was lying to you from the get-go. From the get-go. Oh, yeah. And then I found out after when we were separated, I found out that he had stolen money from his parents. He had stolen money from his brother. I married him because 
I don't even think I was that in love with him. I'm going to be honest with you. I loved all the perks and the money. And I loved the fact that we would go to beautiful restaurants. He had great manners. I mean, on the outside, he looked like a perfect guy. But I thought I was going to get the lifestyle that I wanted at that time, which ended up not being true. But even more so, I don't think I ever really loved him. So I was not really heartbroken when we broke up because I didn't really love him. I just wanted, I was young and, you know. So the first one was, was a con artist. What about the second one? My second husband was also kind of a nostalgic relationship, someone that I went to high school with, but I actually never was friends with him in high school, and he actually dated my best friend for a long time, but um, that's my son's father, Robert Cottrell, and I had just gotten back from South America where I studied uh, at the Universidad down there for a year, and I came home that spring and I met Robert at an any money concert at Tradewinds and it was another nostalgic relationship where I didn't even really think about it but we just started hanging out and having fun and I ran into him and I'm like oh my god Robert and I think it was so good to be back in the states and be hanging with my old friends that I started up a relationship with him and I just didn't I had got accepted to New York University and I thought it was just going to be a summer fling but what happened was in August, New York University sent me a letter saying, we're happy that you're still accepted, but we made a mistake and we accepted too many people for this year. So we have 15 people that were at the bottom of the list. They can't come until the following semester. So here I was thinking I was going to have a summer fling and he was just going to go his way and I was going to go to New York. And then when that, when I got, wasn't able to get in in the semester I had originally planned, he was like, well, I really love you. Let's just get married. And I really loved him. We had a great time. He was, and he wasn't drinking at the time. He was on a sobriety kick, but I didn't even know he was an alcoholic at all. But I found out later that after New York University waylaid me to go into their program, I went to California to visit my brother with my mother. And while I was gone, I had a 280Z, a really fast a turbo car, and mm -hmm. Robert had borrowed it and got arrested drunk driving in my car, but I didn't find out about it till months after we were married. Oh. So we got married and, and Robert was really good to me. He built me a school desk. He was very supportive of my education and, and, um, we really did have a nice relationship. So we got married. I got, you know, and then, uh, I got pregnant six months later and I had Marshall and he went back to drinking like about six months after that. So your first Because we got married so fast. I married him, too, six months after I met him. Why'd you get married so fast? Because I loved him. Why not? <laughs> I, I loved, loved him. Why not? I don't hesitate. Yeah, I, I pull don't, a trigger. And I, don't live, and I don't live with men. I never lived with anyone before. I never wanted to live with a boyfriend. Because I figured if you're going to live with me, then you're going to be married to me and help me and be part of my financial world. and my Like, why live with somebody... I'd rather be single and have my freedom than live with somebody I'm not married to because that never made sense to me just to live with someone because there's no benefit for me. So kind of like if you want the milk, you got to buy the cow? Yeah, because it, well, and for me too, because if I am going to be single, then let me be single and enjoy being what being single is all about. I didn't want to be tied down to someone that I wasn't even married to. You know, that's just... Okay, so... So I made a mistake. I'm definitely, I was definitely impul I'm impulsive like that because I fall in love and I just don't, you know. They do it in Hollywood all the time. <laughs> but I have no regrets because I've had some great loves. Every relationship that I ever had, even the ones that didn't work out, were so passionate and so filled with great love. And so it was so worth it. I would rather have 10 failed relationships where I was really in love and passionate 
that have never had felt that way ever i agree and but... some people are so cautious you know what i mean i don't have any regrets in my relationships even the ones that did i have none zero because i had fun i followed my heart i did what i wanted and they were all with all the with all the the lows there were so many highs and without the and, and i don't think if i had picked Mr. Safe Guy that would have been a good husband and loved me, I would have been bored out of my mind. I probably would have left him or cheated on him. Oops. I think that I'll always be like that. I'm just not one to date someone just because they're safe or comfortable or make a good husband. Why bother? I'd rather be alone and always be open to some exciting, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like, I love to be in love. So why would I settle for anything less? And if that means there's going to be a little heartache down the road, you know, I said that to my mom. She agreed. I mean, it's, yeah. All right, so you want to tell me what's going on with your mom's house and what's happened recently, what your feelings are about that? My mom recently sold her house of 45 years. The one that I talked about earlier that I grew up in in Atlantic Islands on the Hill. Whenever I would return to Highlands over the years, I was always drawn to that house up on Balancewood Road, much like Brett was drawn to my downtown Highlands when she was a teenager. The view from up on that hill was calming and transformative. And Brett's mom, Sandra, was always so welcoming with tea and stimulating conversation about life in general and the arts in particular. And she was extremely encouraging to me regarding my radio work. So I was very sad when I learned that Sandra was selling the house that she had raised Brett and Allison and Emerson in. And my mother always really loved that house. And she always said it's so great to live in New Jersey. And she was very attached to New Jersey in that house the same way I was. And so when she sold it and she really had no feelings and never cried and it just was so detached from the whole process, I was a little shocked. Because for me, it was a little bit more emotional. I was just shocked at her, uh, all the years that she just worked to save that house during different times and how much I love Atlantic Cons, I'll never sell this house. And then I was um, really, really happy that she sold it and can move on and her, but I was very shocked at her disengagement from the whole process. Well, part of that was probably because she'd been trying to sell it for three or four years. Yes, and she had no friends left there anymore, and last summer she spent the whole summer there, and I was here, and she was alone, and she said it was the worst experience of her life. She said I was lonely, uh -huh. and it was, she said, you know, I, she just said that, I think that, yes, somehow she just, she lost her taste for New Jersey, and so for me it was a little harder because I always loved that house, and I always thought maybe I would get it someday or live there eventually, and so it was sad, you know. But I also have to detach because it's painful, so I just kind of don't even think about it. So if you don't mind telling me, like, what you were telling me earlier about, like, burning all your stuff. Oh, I, I found a lot of things from my past. I found letters from your brother, poems, love letters, a um, couple love letters from Bruce, my recent breakup. I had um, yearbooks and screenplays I wrote and papers from... Uh, college and I read them all I spent one whole day just sitting and going through all of them and I 
ripped up and shredded and threw most of it away. I felt that seeing my mother at 80 years old or 77 years old go through all her yearbooks and all of her college papers and all of that and reading it and, and, and reliving the memory as she was reading it and going through everything and then looking at me and she goes, do I keep this stuff? She goes, because really, what am I going to do with it at this stage of my life? And after cleaning out her house, it was such a grueling, labor-intensive process. I left there and I came home and purged two of my storage units completely of stuff that I was keeping that I thought, because there's something about watching someone go through that process that I thought, oh my God, that old adage and saying came to mind, travel light, travel far. I didn't want to be burdened down by the physical stuff and a place to keep it. And I didn't want to be burdened down by the mental stuff too, because I can always revisit. I have such a I don't think I need the physical papers and stuff to remind me. But at that one moment, between seeing my mother with too much stuff and it was overwhelming, I really thought, you know what? I don't want this crap. So you were tearing that stuff up, though? Yeah, ripping it up. Like, did you have I read feeling? it all. Well, I kept them for years because every time I read them, it would remind me. But something in me has, something in me has died or changed to the point where I actually had such detachment. And maybe that's not a good thing, because maybe on some levels I'm shut down a little bit. It's weird, but that's how I looked at it. Even, you know, even, yeah, so that's it. So thank you once again for listening to Maxie's Taxi, interviews of people you've probably never heard of. I hope you've been enjoying these interviews. The next one will be with Brett's ex-boyfriend, my brother, David Maxson. Once again, I'd like to say thank you to my greatest journalistic influences, Mrs. Maureen Keeler, Dr. Bob Cole, Dr. Gerald Flannery, Studs Terkel, and This American Life. And of course, thank you, Brett, for being brave enough to bear your feelings and your soul and thanks for being so much fun to hang and argue with over the years. And thank you for being such a good friend. Sometimes if we had a big acorn fight over the weekend and someone was pissed off, they'd bring some to like in the school bus, they'd wait for the bus and they'd have some in their pocket and they'd be like, there you go, motherfucker. That was for last week. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. I'm so lucky to grow up there. Awesome place to grow up.